looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up, Crazy Train Radio? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotchy scotch scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. Hey, I know we have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows, and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world, but I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans, because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars. However, none of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons. But I do have a little suggestion for you. SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, they obtain autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises. Whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as, besides getting their autographs, you can do live Zoom calls with your favorite stars. You can do personalized videos for people, greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions, check them out and see the options they have SignatureHorror.com That's right, SignatureHorror.com
Are you annoyingly even keel? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, alright? I need help! E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Oh, yeah. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh my god! Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. You're naughty! This medicine is made for extreme cases of being Heal or have an extreme depression. Ah, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my. and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Welcome back here. I'm just, you know, the bystander, Crazy Train Radio, but I wanted to bring aboard this time a longtime friend of mine, actually one of the first guys to ever contribute to the newsletters, but somebody with history dating back to the 50s. He has done everything in wrestling, obviously world-class caliber wrestler, booker, announcer. Most people know him from Smoky Mountain, but he did so much more. He was in the office in Atlanta and probably a zillion other promotions. He's in the Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, wrestlers and athletes hall of fame and, and so much more. The great Les Thatcher. Uh, Les, thanks for, for doing this. I know I've been nagging you for a while. And <laughs> I, said to, I said earlier, you know, you are one of the, our last uh, beloved links to the territories with all his marbles intact. Well, I'm not sure if all the marbles are intact, but, yeah, you know, it, it becomes uh, scary for me, Mike. I'm 80 years old. I'm, my health is good. I had my COVID, uh, and it, it kicked my butt, no doubt about it. But I've had both my uh, uh, shots now, and uh Still wearing my mask, still trying to be a good guy. But anyway, uh, you know, wow, this, uh, the business has gotten crazy. I mean, it, it has, but it's always, it's always been a bit crazy, <laughs> but, uh, has, but I mean, it's, it's gotten crazier, I guess. Is that the way to say it? It sure as hell has been a crazy and gotten crazier. It's um, because we just learned last night that probably Flair's daughter, Ashley, who wrestles as Charlotte Flair, is now off WrestleMania. And um, her significant other, uh, Andrade, who was a great superstar in, in Mexico. I mean, this guy was in main events there. And then when uh, CMLL Paco Alonso would send him to uh, Japan, he was uh, in semi-mains over there for New Japan, etc. And... And for him to feel like he, he finally got his uh, 
they finally released him. He was begging for that because they haven't used him since uh, uh, God knows when. October. Like October. Yeah. And and so because he's paired with, with Charlotte, it's one of those things. And so now she was taken off the posters, which like everybody from Jim Cornette on down has been commenting on, you know, with the, the, taking off the WrestleMania poster, it pretty much means you're not going to be on it because she was like centrally placed. And uh, so the business is crazy. We were just talking about for WrestleMania, like the ticket prices and the ancillary events. I mean, I think yeah. the t- go top tickets are 250 to 500. Uh, and it may not even be, WrestleMania may be more, you know, and they give you the chair, the souvenir chair. And that might just be at stuff like Fastlane from last night. So it might be quite a bit more, but puts it in the, the realm of unaffordable when wrestling is, you, you and I were saying, and I remember uh, top tickets at my home base. I had two home bases, Los Angeles Olympic LaBelle promotion, Hollywood office and San Francisco Roy Shire, Northern California. And ticket prices were five for adults, two fifty for kids. They were only elevated to seven fifty for adults when the NWA champion, whether it was Kaniski or Funks, et cetera, came into town. And, and now with it this way, I, I, you know, I don't get it. But the, the telling thing is that all of the shenanigans and rigmarole, WD, and I'm not criticizing WWE had to do to open up Mania. So I think uh, Jonathan. Uh, only 25,000 fans max allowed both nights. So they were going to put tickets on sale and that's, you know, changed. They had to alter it and, and, you know, lay it on out for weeks on end. And there's only a couple of matches even announced, you know, less than three weeks out from WrestleMania. And, uh, you know, they've had to scale back. They wanted to have, I think, 55,000 fans each night. Now it's only going to be 25 and they're, not having the easiest time moving those tickets because it's still sort of a dangerous time. And we see on the news, you know, all of the spring breakers, they're having to call the riot police throwing tear gas at those kids going nuts without masks. They- you know what I think about that when I see that, uh, the stuff going on in Miami, I thought I won't be alive to see it, but some of those idiots without masks, drunk out of their minds, will be running this country in a number of years. Right? <laughs> No, you know, it's mania um, has lost some of its uh, buzz. I mean, it's still an important thing. There's, no, I mean, there's no two ways about it. And I think a lot of people, well, you know, I, I think a lot of people like go to the Super Bowl, not because they're big football fans or because their favorite team is necessarily there, but a lot of people that can afford to do that, do it just to say, I went to the Super Bowl. And I think a lot of people go to mania for the same reason, you know. I, I I don't think necessarily that it's about it's more about being mania and about the act. Well, you meant, you know, the activities going on around it, plus the independent shows and, and stuff like that. Um, I think a lot of people go for the atmosphere and the several days and mania is now part of that. But when we're talking about mania first started, it was all about that show and a couple of the top matches. I mean, the, the rest was basically filler, but it's, it's lost its luster, but then they're booking people different. When Mania first started, uh, you had three or four top baby faces, three or four top heels, and they were feuding. And I mean, they were interchangeable guys too, but they worked their way up the card. Now, you know, when I watch a show, and, and you mentioned, you know, I've been a booker, I've been a wrestler, I've been a trainer, I've, I've been, you know, I've done everything in this business but get rich, and it's too late for that. But, uh, I watch and I think, 
are any of these guys really, when I say over, I don't mean does somebody like them. And of course you're hearing all the piped in, you know, no, uh, noise and stuff now anyway, crowd of reaction and so forth. But are they really, re- is anybody over like Shawn Michaels or over like Bret Hart or over like Steve Austin or over like Rock? Am I making sense? I hope. Yes. They're not. You know, it's more, it's a cast of characters and the characters are more important than the matches sometimes, right? Well, and then I'm going to shut up and let Jonathan uh, talk away because he's been to some manias. I want to see if he's been as exhausted as I have, at least for me, for Japan magazines, primarily having to try to cover all those things. And WWE, usually for the last few years, they try to make it difficult for those ancillary groups, unrelated like Impact or Ring of Honor or New Japan or Shikara or uh, uh, oh gosh, any of those things or the uh, Russell Khan itself, you know, the signings with non-WWE, right. et cetera. They, they uh, block out the hotels, so depending on the city, uh, but I know that was true in New Orleans. Uh, the other ancillary events, like even Santa Clara, San Jose in 2015, had to be miles and miles away, you know, sometimes an right. hour to go see the Ring of Honor show. So, you know, because they wanted it just to be, and it can't be now, just the Hall of Fame, the NXT stuff, and then Mania itself. And they're all interchangeable cogs, was my point. And I'm talking about, like, the share is not, uh, Charlotte Flair is not on this Mania. They've just popping in Rhea Ripley tonight in her place, and she'll be the one getting the shot against Asuka uh, in, instead. So there, th- these wrestlers are interchangeable cogs as opposed to having a feud you know, play out. The guys not touch each other for like three, three and a half months, which what you want to classic in, in our day. But let me throw, shut up and throw it to Jonathan. You know, but my point is a lot of these guys today, they don't have the or. Even if some of the guys that really weren't perhaps the greatest workers, but they had skill sets in other areas in our era, the 70s in particular, 60s, early 80s, a magic time, they, they just had that aura. Whether you were Dick the Bruiser or whoever, Sheik Ed Farhut, you had that aura and... You know, that was box office when they were at their peak, you know, when they well, were. Let, let me cut you off now. And I'm going to say something. Then we're going to actually give Jonathan a chance to talk, right? <laughs> oh. I've been a smart ass. Mike knows me. Oh, <laughs> I was born as smart ass. No, you know, uh, you're right. And, and you know, it, it's. Uh, but then the whole thing is now it's more about the characterization and it's not about building uh, well, here's an example. Christian just signed with AEW, right? And they're, and the first night there are talking about being a contender for their title. He just got there. He spent 15 minutes there, basically, right? Uh, to me, the way you bring him in, he does have a background. But if you're going to get him over, let him say, wait a minute. I don't want to be shoved into anything. I understand. I, I'm proud of my legacy. I'm proud of my history. But I'm here with a new company. I'm ready and I want to prove myself and let him work his way up to that title shot. Give the people, there's nothing to it. Back, back when I was a kid, I started Jonathan in 1960. Uh, so I've been doing, been on, on this goofy grind for almost 61 years. Uh, but you know, guys had, uh, you built to something and an old timer told me way back in the early sixties, he said, you know, kid, 
you go to a strip club, the girls don't come out naked and put their clothes back on. There's a reason for that. There's nothing to anticipate. And that is my point that today there's very little to anticipate because you've seen it all on television 15 times before it ever gets to a big pay-per-view. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So I remember hearing Jesse Ventura speak on something similar as far as having that apex. Yeah. But I want to answer Mike's question first. He brought up my way as far as attending manias. And I was at two different ones 10 years apart. One in Phoenix, as I was telling him. What was it? Taker Michaels 2. But then I was just recently at the one in New York, 35. Uh-huh. And as a fan, it's it was night and day as far as the excitement and having an attraction where in Phoenix, it was like, oh, I want to see Taker. I don't know how long he's going to be. I want to see Sean. I want to, you know, there were certain attractions you wanted to see. Right. In New York, it was like, there was all the pomp, pomp and circumstance, but it was like, who am I here to see? Not to say there wasn't good talent, but it's like, there wasn't that one or two people to that got you your juices flowing. Right, right. Well, you know, part of that, I think, is what they call uh, even booking now, right? You beat me two weeks, I'll beat you two weeks. So nobody is, that's what I'm saying, nobody is over, over. And, I, and I'm going to use another example here as well. And it covers not just WWE, it covers every major promotion out there. Uh, back when Dusty passed away, I had some young guys, you know, talking to me about, well, you you were wrestling at that time and you, you know, watching, you know, that whole American dream thing build and stuff. And I said, yeah, I sure did. And, and, you know, all the things that got him over, but the one thing you guys aren't talking about. And they said, what? I said, well, to start with in the, in the mid seventies, there was only one dusty on the show, meaning that was the big gimmick. The most, the rest of the guys, I mean, there may be a like Wahoo is an Indian or something, but Everybody else was a wrestler with a first and last name. Today, the bookers, the owners, the writers, whatever, the, whoever the hell's running everything, they're more concerned, Jonathan, what's your gimmick? Mm-hmm. I'm not asking you, can you work, Jonathan? What's your gimmick? Mm-hmm. Right? Everybody has a gimmick. Exactly. So no gimmick sticks out. It's just like, uh, you know, Back in the day, um, well, I'll give you another great example of the differences. Uh, if you went into the Carolinas in the 70s, uh, they usually kept 50 guys on the roster, 50 or uh, maybe 50, 55. Anyway, if you'd never been there before, they didn't know you, you know, you get a coin, they'll say, what do you use for a finish? And you'll say, I use sleeper. No, you don't. Johnny Weaver used sleeper. Well, I use, no, you don't use that either. Meaning that if... I have a finish. I have a finish. Everybody else on that card, they don't use it. Nobody kicks out of it. You see where I'm going with this? You built to that ex- that top level with that move. When when Johnny Weaver put the, put the sleeper on a heel, people started putting their coats on and knew it was time to go home. Mm-hmm. And so today, it's I call it the stupid time of everybody's smart, which means the guy that says everybody's smart really isn't. And my point there is, gentlemen, and I'm on my, my <laughs> I'm on my pedestal now. Uh, 
it's everybody's when they say everybody's not, I don't care that everybody knows wrestling is predetermined. I know the movie, uh, the TV series, the blacklist is predetermined, but James Spader is such a great actor. The stories are so good. I'm, I'm dialed in from start to finish. If you watch justified on FX, uh, the babyface uh, United States Marshal, the, the actors, I don't forget the uh, Timothy, whatever, but Raylan Gibbons, they got him over like a million bucks. But it was about him and the, everybody else was a support, right? And we don't have that anymore. Everybody is a gimmick. Everybody dives. Everybody uh, kicks out of everybody else's finish. So what actually means something? Can I add, let me uh, interrupt as I'm prone to do, and I apologize to people. I'm using uh, an iPhone, so I'm moving it around with my hand instead of my wife's laptop. But uh, Brian Cage, good friend of mine, I saw him start out in Medellin, California. He was on all of our California uh, indie promotions. They're not indie. I mean, you know, pro wrestling gorilla. He worked. Yeah. He worked for me a few times when I did that uh, tournament in LA in 2012 and 13. Too, Mike. Go ahead. Tremendous guy. You know, phenomenal and all of that, but and I'm not criticizing him, but he was selling shirts at Pro Wrestling Gorilla and APW in Northern California, and his shirt was the gimmick he was going by, get my shit in, and that is the thing that Les and I have been talking privately about, and you know, no secret out there that it, it's bothersome to me that since the Savage Steamboat thing at Mania 3, um, where they, you know, Randy had like everything, 293 moves in exact order, and he and Steamboat had to memorize it. That's what it's about now. And um, it's a it shouldn't you know, be. talk about their match in the back. You know, they want to get their shit in as opposed to the fine, beautiful, <laughs> wonderful art of wrestling, which was gauge the audience, react, go on the fly, speak to each other. And, and, and do it that way uh, organically instead of having memorized all the stuff. And, of course, to highlight all the, the various spots you do. So it's a spots fest. And I'm sure I would hope Jim Cornette would agree with us, the genius of wrestling. That being oh, damn. Jim, um, <laughs> in that there, there's like no psychology. There's no story. No. Telling. I'm sure you have the overt yeah, can, storytelling. You know can I I'm throw in about? another comparison now and then type of thing? Uh, this this television with no crowd, with no people, right? And uh, if you watched, I, I had I've had this conversation with several people. In a car. I think guys from my generation pick up on it a lot quicker than the kids. Uh, but if you notice, uh, the guys would hit something and then they'd stop, and they they were hesitant. Now, not for a minute or anything, but they're waiting for something. What the hell are they waiting on? I, I mean, that was the question I first started asking. Then I realized. They're waiting on the pop because that's what they're working for. Now, I said this, guys from my generation, if they, you know, if they were uh, teleport, transported or teleported and were young enough and would put in the same situation, we would handle it better than the young guys. And the only reason for that is that we never work for the pop. We work for the finish and to tell the story. Now, if we were you were a babyface and you got cheered uh, throughout the match, you you were happy with that, but that wasn't what you were shooting for to begin with. And if you were the heel, you were wanting people to throw 
popcorn boxes at you and boo you, but that wasn't, you, you were working to, you know, you start at the beginning of the match to get to the finish. And it was like, start with the foreplay, build to the climax. And so we could have worked without, believe me, I've worked in a few small towns where I wish that was almost like there were no people, but, uh, I don't know if I'm making my point or not, but we were, it was a different, so we weren't working for the pop. So we wouldn't have stopped in the middle of this. Right. And that's, that's a big difference too. They're working for the pop and not, it's not about telling a story. I'll tell you what, and I don't know if you guys saw it or not, but last Wednesday night, Britt Baker and, um, Thunder Rosa. I did. Uh, they, they stole the friggin' show. Now, I, I, women in blood, I've heard, I'm not a thumb, I'm not a slice and dice guy. Listen, I've done my share of juice in my career, but it was all for a reason. I'm not interested in just seeing guys cut themselves up. But these girls went from something that was actually, I wasn't expecting anything to, they had me sitting up and thinking, damn, (laughs) they, I mean, and the thing that made it, made me do that wasn't. It was the way they went about it. It was their facial expressions, their body. They were serious. There wasn't any stupid comedy, with the exception of uh, Baker's valet or whatever, her assistant there that went through the one table. Other than that, the match built just the way I was talking about, you know, start with the foreplay and build to the climax. But those girls, they blew every guy on that show out of the, out of the damn park last Wednesday night. Now, can they do that again? Don't know. Maybe. But somebody with a very little experience would just say, well, let's have them do it again. Nope. Sometimes things like that, you, that you can't program it like that. It's not automatic. I've had matches where with somebody where, I, you know, our feet were barely touching the floor. We couldn't have made it. And that's what I saw with these girls. They couldn't have made a mistake if they'd actually set out to. Can they do that again next week? Probably not. It was, it was it, tremendous. I had to watch yes. this thing three times because I was taking notes for Japan and, and reporting on everything. But yeah, that was tremendous. I'd actually talked to her earlier in the day on Busted Open. I was on, asked to come on right before she came on. And I brought up the fact in dentistry, we have our own carny speak, which is a lost art in wrestling, but we have our own way of speaking. So like our patients don't know what we're talking about. If I say a classified <laughs> foil or alternate, or I call, uh, you know what our slang is less in the Jonathan for dentures is burgers. And she laughed uh, at hearing that later because it's true on the East Coast, uh, you know, where <laughs> she has a, a DMD degree, which she can use to finesse doing the hand signs that Eli Drake used to do for, you know, cheap heat. And uh, west of uh, Louisiana, it's uh, called a DDS, which I have. But let me get into, you talked about training people, and I forgot to mention this, but you've trained people you know, over decades, and a lot of people remember you uh, would bring in guys, Harley Race and Steamboat. I think you guys, I don't know how long you guys were paired together, the, the giant triumvirate, the, the gold dust trio of training. Well, we, uh, we, you know, we did a, ma- uh, a training manual together, the pro wrestlers uh, workout and instructional guide. Uh, by sports uh, sports publishing LLC, but they went out of business, so it's it's out of print now. But you can still find it on on Amazon. But Harley, well, Harley and I first started actually. Uh, you know, uh, we were asked to put a, a camp together for CAC, and we we did four years of that, and then we got 
bulldozed out because we were doing too much good, I think. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> yep. um, but we just, you know, well, Harley and I had first worked together in 1963. He was 19 years old and I was 22. And, um, but anyway, we just flowed well together. And then when he, the first uh, year he did the NOAA camp, the week-long camp in Eldon, uh, Steamer and I, you know, were uh, on the on the uh, bill with him, and we just, and the, we just you know so for, we worked together I guess three four years, uh, you know, and then it got to where Harley couldn't get get in the ring, but we still you know were able to do stuff. But uh, yeah, it's it's well the problem today too is when I do weekend camps now, and I and I believe me I. I'll give you my email address here in a little while, but if someone's interested and might be listening, I do weekend training camps. Anyway, uh, the problem is there's so many uh, bogus trainers. I mean, guys are in building, get a ring. Hey, I'll, I'll train you five bucks a week. Oh, you know, uh, and some of these guys, there's more guys out there. I, I tease Rudy uh, Gonzalez. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there become more of them than there are of us. <laughs> They're going to run over us at some point. These guys who say, well, I've been in the business 15 minutes. I'll train you. And who trained them? You know, there are probably a handful of legitimate trainers in this country that I, I mean, that I, I mean, they're maybe born that, but the ones that I've worked with, and then there's a million that should be taking lessons themselves for Christ's sake, guys. That's the other part I think that makes, you know, makes it tough. We, back in the territory days, first of all, you had, I, I never was in a dressing room that there weren't veterans. And a lot of the kids today, it's just the blind leading the blind, you know? And I was also smart enough when I started that if I got taught, if, if a veteran came to me and chastised my, uh, me for my work or uh, critiqued it and, and was negative, I didn't say, well, I, uh, I shut my mouth and learned. Because if I didn't, he might have shut it for me, right? And the kids today just don't, it's not, the, and it's not the same from basically from the cradle to the main roster. And it's, that's why the business has lost something. I think we need to turn it back a little bit. And I don't mean, I don't want to go back to 10 minute headlocks or anything like that, but let's put wrestling back in wrestling and forget all the, the goofy high spots. You know, they, you know, here's, here's some, I ask these young guys to try to make my point. I said, uh, you know, you remember the first time you saw your wife or your girlfriend naked? Yeah, I do. You remember the 300th time? Don't bother to answer because I know the answer because mine would be the same. No, I don't remember. Why? Because it became commonplace. So when I see 15 dives in five matches, why would I be excited about a dive? Or every match, there's 14, guy, 14 kickouts from everybody else's finish. What's exciting about that? That's the problem. And that's when I, when I go back to where I say, everybody's smart. No, when you say that, you're not. Because movie, I knew when I was nine years old, Roy Rogers really wasn't killing those bad guys, right? But I watched anyway. It's, it's, I think the business, the guys in the ring have gotten to a degree sloppy. Because uh. we, we can do just anything because everybody's smart. But you're not smart if you're saying that and if you're working in that manner. Les, don't you agree that that has ruined the biz? We saw that uh, 
early on stuff, 91, 92. And then when WCW got going and let the inmates run the asylum and uh, Sean Waltman, who I love, I've known him forever since his Eddie Sharkey training days, late eighties, but he wears a shirt that says Mizark on it. And Carney is now out there and it's a regular with the, even the, the Johnny Swinger character on impact, you know, every other word, with his character, he's using Carney, Kizarni, and, and stuff like that, which actually, uh, he might be one of the few guys of today still using it. That's a crime that that, that came from, uh, you know, the, the carnival days, the ad shows, and all of that. Yes, uh, I speak as He was on a Kizarni with me, is he? Uh, not today, because I ain't as fast. I ain't as fast. And you know the, the cool thing about Carney is there are nuances depending where you are in the U.S., it's almost like dialects. And then uh, Lucha, Mexican carne is different than carne in Japan. They actually have it. Okugai is the word for a fan, a mark in Jap Japanese carne and, uh -huh. and so on. So there's all these, you know, it, it's so cool. A, a lot of us, I mean, through wrestling, we learned about that and nuances in language and people with, uh, in the South might speak differently than the haughty New Yorkers or the New Englanders. Oh, sure. Well, uh, well, well you know, the kids, uh, the kids, I, I listen to some of the young, I, I'm using my fingers in, in, in quotations now, some of the young wrestlers, and I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I worked this, I worked so-and-so. No, you didn't. You worked with so-and-so. You work the audience. You didn't work so and so. Am I? You see, I mean, little things like that. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not horribly offended by it, but I'm thinking, you know, what the hell? <laughs> I know what the word. I know how to talk. I've been doing it for 61 years, like a wrestler, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting around with somebody that's 22 years old, and I don't understand what the hell he's saying. You know, of course, he's, I, I teased Dr. Tom or any of the guys, you know, where I said, you know, we can go in that dressing room and talk Carney and nobody in there will know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> and those are the boys. I saw an yeah. older guy, Pepper Gomez was at a uh, uh, an iron show, which was sort of the uh, United States version, the, the sister group of Noah Japan, Misawa's group, where he took all the boys when Mrs. Baba took it over, husband died, beloved legend, handshake deals total trust and then she really ruined it and uh so misawa took all those guys away from Noah. and the same thing happened all mike modest donovan morgan bison smith had passed away who i think less knew uh took everybody from apw and formed iron the counterpart and then those guys would tour for noah but pepper gumbles yeah. was in the locker room and he heard one of the young boys use the word worker and he really went off on him you know for using that word because this guy was as green as grass, probably didn't even belong in the locker room with somebody of his caliber. And Bastine was there too that night, and uh, he gave it to the guy, but a little gentler than than Pepper would have. Uh, so I, I want to shift gears, and I want Jonathan to talk. So I'm going to throw something. Jonathan asked Wes, who broke him into the business? There weren't any schools then. I mean, Dory Sr.'s thing in Amarillo didn't occur until like 1969. So Maybe Jonathan, ask him about that. Let's hear about Les's upbringing and how, I don't even know if Les was like a, he had to been, I know I've asked him this before. He, he watched wrestling. I broke, I broke in in the very first ever wrestling school. Tony Santos, correct? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I, 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 rest, start, I did start wrestling amateur at 12 in Hawaii. Um, my, uh, 
high school, there was no high school wrestling in Cincinnati where I grew up back then. And so anyway, I wanted to get in the business and I, you know, I bugged referees at the matches in Cincinnati and I drove up to Columbus to Al Half's office and uh, tried to get my foot in the door and they told me you need, and at the time I didn't need to put some size on. I was about 180 pounds at the time and needed more experience and so forth, so on. So in a wrestling review magazine, I saw this article on Tony Santos's uh, gym in Boston, where if you aspiring young athletes wanted to be professional wrestlers, they could train with Tony for six months for $300. So I wrote Tony a letter and I got a three, uh, a trifold advertising school. In fact, I still have that trifold by the way with uh, Tony had handwritten some notes in it for me. And, um, I got on a Greyhound bus in Cincinnati in February 1960 and went to Boston and uh, lived in a rooming house, 10 bucks a week, uh, shared a bathroom and uh, trained from uh, February till uh, July the 4th was my first match in Blue Hills, Maine, 1960, July the 4th. And I tell young guys, I said, now you realize started in February and didn't get my first match till July the 4th, you know, when they smartened me up to the business. And of course the kids went July the 4th <laughs> is when I got smartened up. No, that's, that's a fact. I had started to kind of figure things out because I went with, uh, you, you both know who Gene Santos is, uh, rocket Monroe, et cetera. So that's Gene, Gene Santazaro, Gene Dundee. Uh, Gene's, and, and Gene was uh, actually Gene had never been in a live match himself at the time, but he helped in the gym and helped train and took the ring to places. And I would go with Gene to the ring, to the uh, shows. We'd set the ring up. We'd get in and work out together, take a shower, go eat, come back, watch the matches, take the ring down and back to Boston. But um, they handed me my ass for the first couple of weeks. And, uh, but yeah, that July the 4th, I was, uh, Tony's young, one of Tony's younger boys came over to my room. I, I was in a, a rooming house, uh, right actually across the street from where the gym was located at that time. And also living there was Ronnie Dupree, Alex Medina, Johnny Mann. Who am I missing here? Pat Patterson. Well, Pat didn't yeah. come till the next year. Terry Garvin. Anyway. So I, first of all, I thought, Tony's son said, Dad wants to talk to you. I thought, oh, I, I'm in trouble, right? <laughs> Why is he asking me into the office in the morning for it? So I go over, and they sit down with him, and he said, um, you got your gear, right? You got you got shoes and, and jacket and, and boot, uh, tights and trunks, trunks and stuff, yeah. All right, today's your first day. What? Today, you're going to wrestle. Uh, go get your gear and come back. So I went and packed my bag and came back. And so how they had taught us to work, Jonathan, here's the clever, here's the clever thing. Guys keep beating me to the punch, but go ahead. Well, yeah, they keep beating us, beating the shit out of us. Yeah. No. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, they, they enjoyed watching us, you know, try to stretch each other or they enjoyed getting down with us and, 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 you know, but they would have us, they'd say, okay, we want you to have a, a you know, like a professional match now. And since nobody's getting paid and we don't want anybody to get hurt, we want you just to put the holes on. We just don't want you to apply any pressure. So that's how they were teaching us to work, right? How to be loose by mm-hmm. put, you know, take the arm in a double wrist, top wrist lock or hammer lock, but don't, don't squeeze. Don't, don't apply the pressure, but we want you, you know, 
and that's how we were. They were teachers. So Tony said to me, he said, "You know how you used to, you do the you practice matches and you didn't apply pressure." And I said, "Yes, sir." Well, that's what they're going to do with you today. You know, didn't tell me that was the way it was supposed to be the rest of my life. That's what we're going to do today. And then the rest of my education between Boston and Blue Hills, Maine, which I'm not sure the distance, probably 250 miles or so. But anyway, uh, in the car was Joe Sasso, who was uh, a young football player from Boston, Boston University, who was, wasn't as green as me, but he'd only been around in the business a year or so, a couple years maybe. He was driving Bull Montana and Ronnie Hill. And uh, we wrestled uh, at the Blue Hills Fairgrounds. The ring was set up on the, on the racetrack for the grandstand. And uh, Ronnie and I worked the opener. Sasso and Bull worked the second match. And we came, uh, Ron, uh, Bull, uh, Ronnie, or excuse me, Red and I came back against Ronnie and Bull in the main event. And that was the way it started. Well, let's fast forward a little bit because I'm curious to hear this story, if it's true at all. And I know Mike would know the name. My boy, Jim Barnett, gave you the name Thatcher. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Well, my lady's Irish. And I, I honestly, everybody mispronounces it. I mean, Malady, Malady, Malady. I mean, I'm so accustomed. I answer to anything. Right? <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I wanted to change. Because of the mispronunciation, I wanted to change my name. But in Boston, because of the Irish uh, influence in the, that area, Tony wanted me to keep that name, obviously. So I did. And it wasn't a big issue up there. Uh, so anyway, when I, when I uh, the next, uh, ter- started working for Barnett in uh, whew, winter, I guess January, February, March, maybe a 62. And uh, used Milady then. And of course, the ring announcers mispronounced it. Somebody, there's an old uh, print ad from Cobo Hall in Detroit that's got my name on it, and Milady is mis- misspelled on there. And I, when people put it up on Facebook, I said, and that's why Barnett changed my name. But uh, I didn't realize it was it upset him so bad. I mean, I was basically accustomed to it. And so one day, Les Ruffin came into the locker room. I guess I'd been working for Jim probably two months at the time. Um, and he said, the old man's getting tired of people mispronouncing your last name. He wants to call you Les Thatcher. Is that okay? I said, yeah. How do you tell me? I'm sure, be sure I know how to spell it. So I've been Les Thatcher ever since. Bart, wow. treated me good. I, I have no, <clears throat> he was demanding, but uh, he paid well. And, uh, you know, I worked for him there, worked for him again in, um, yeah, let's spit it out. I worked for him again in Australia? <laughs> Atlanta and, uh, here in Knoxville, actually, he, when he bought Fuller out, I stayed here for a while. And uh, then I came back and, and ran the tours, uh, for, uh, Georgia in Ohio, Michigan and West Virginia in 82 and 83, which was, uh, for Jim and Ole. But yeah, Barnett was, uh, he was a character, but, uh, you know, he, uh, paid well. He was good. He was, he was sharp to stack. He, I had to call him when I ran those tours in Ohio, Michigan and West Virginia, he wanted to know what box office was every night. And I forget exactly right now, guys, it's been a few years, but what, uh, what time he went to bed, like he went to bed exactly at midnight or something like that. Right. So I had to get box office checked up numbers and get on the phone and let him know what you know 
what the box office was, and then they'd say, oh, Leslie, what are the boys talking about in the locker room? What's the gossip? And I'd say, I don't know, Jim, although I did. But I, I learned that from my predecessor, Jerry Briscoe. He said, you know, stay out the, the stay off the hot seat. Don't get in the middle of anything. He just say, I, Jim, I'm so busy. I don't get a chance to pay attention to gossip in the locker room. But, uh, yeah, Jim was, uh, you know, one of the things that the kids today just don't have the opportunity to do. But I during realized through 1960 and 1970, I was blessed to have worked with some of the best workers ever in this business. And it's hard not to learn, right? If, if, uh, if that's, and some great promoters. And then when I started doing television, realized I've shared a microphone with Gordon Soley, Lance Russell, Bob Cottle, Ed Caprell, Charlie Platt, Jim Ross. I don't know. I don't think I'm missing anybody. And if I haven't, Dutch, Dutch Mantel was my color <laughs> guy here for a while. Uh, Luthez was my color guy when I was doing Mario Savoldi's television up in New England. Um, so, I, you know, if you don't. If, Wait, but Les, you never told me. Uh, what period was, was that the, whatever, what was he calling it? The ICW? Because, of course. You yeah, that was in the 80s. That was the late 80s. Um, was he a different person than when he brought you, me, Honky Tonk Man, George Steele? I forget who else. Jim Duggan. That was well. That you, have you ever seen that thing that we did? And it's and I've never seen any of it. I'd love no, to have a copy could, of that. He he released it. They, they were we were doing voiceover for stuff, uh, and then his primary play by play guy had me doing color, and I think we all alternated. And they were well, when he, uh, yeah, overseas. I'm trying to, he promoted a lot of towns up in New England. We did one show in Jersey, I remember. Uh, actually, they came down, I don't know what possessed them to do this, but they came down here to Knoxville and uh, leased the World Fair site. And we did several TV shows here. I mean, all in, same, all in one day, obviously. I mean, we didn't stay here for several days. But uh, I had, yeah, we had a hell of a crew there. We had Idol, Gary Hart, um, Brody. Kevin Sullivan was the booker, had Holy the uh, sheep herders, and we uh, had a hell of a crew up there. I mean, I, like I say, I've been blessed to work with the greatest uh, wrestling announcers of all time. I've worked with some of the greatest workers of all time, and I've helped to break, help break a few of those in, too. But, it, you know, I, I've been blessed. My, I've had a, a wonderful, wonderful career. I can't can't deny it. I, I want to say I'll... I'll... Les, I'll tell you about this, maybe on this show with Jonathan at a later time. Well, I'll, I'll tell it right now very quickly. Uh, Dickie Steinborn calls up uh, Barnett in Australia. Or no, he called up uh, Dory Jr., who was defending the strap in Australia. Something like that. But Dickie did as good or perhaps slightly better. Uh, 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 crap. Um, Barnett Bar impersonation. Oh, he did the Jim Barnett impression. He calls up. This is what it was. They're in Australia, and he calls up Dory Jr. in Florida, who was then NWA champ, doing uh, Barnett's, you know, on, no, I mean, you know, everybody knew immediately after, like, word one when Jim Barnett was talking. And uh, he he was, like, hitting on Dory Jr. at 3 in the morning. This is Dickie Steinberg pretending <laughs> to be. They're to be. I, oh, yeah, I do. You heard that one? That one? Is no, like, I, I, but I was just going to say, Dick, yeah, Dickie, Dickie called 
uh, Johnny Doyle at Kobo and imitated Barnett. And uh, I forget who was who he was wrestling that night, but Bruiser was in the main event at Cobol, and Barnett and Dickie as Barnett is telling uh, Doyle, Bruiser won't make it. He's had a car wreck and can't get there. He's going to have to substitute the main event. <laughs> so. Jesus Christ! Ah, yes, the good old days, Jonathan. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's good, but. That's good. Bunch but of large a, children, <laughs> two hundred and fifty pound children. Oh yeah, I've heard some Let's, stories. I want to, I, because Les has trained or finessed so many great people. You, you definitely had a hand. Well, tell us who you had a hand with. But I, it wasn't Carl Anderson, one of your pupils, as well as uh, Carl started with me. Yes, yeah, Shark Boy, I trained. Uh, Nigel McGinnis, I trained. Uh, a lot of guys have. I've got I've, my fingerprints on a lot of guys. Uh, Adam Cole will tell you that uh, he's learned a lot from me. Uh, Drew Gulak. Um, gosh, who else? Uh, Jamie Noble, uh, Rosie Umaga, Charlie Haas, uh, Shannon Moore. Um, you know, well, I, I, I go, you, you know, funny thing is, I guess I was training guys before I knew I was training guys because Scott Casey, Bill White and JJ Dillon all give me credit for advancing their careers. So, well, wow. I'm a pain cool. in the ass, quite frankly, guys. So that's, <laughs> it takes, you I... gotta be that to be a good coach. <laughs> True. Your, your email or, or your website to uh, to promote these weekend seminars and everything and anything Les Thatcher. Yeah, okay. Uh, you can reach me, lesthatcher28 at gmail.com. I do do one-day uh, seminars, but I prefer weekend training camps uh, simply because we can get more done. I, and on the weekends, I cover tag team singles, psychology, uh, nutrition, tra- uh, weight training, what you know, whatever the the law allows and we go i mean it's like this is like from 9 a.m to 5 p.m both days and with a break you know an hour break for lunch and uh you know we cover every everything the whole spectrum of professional wrestling so feel free to contact me and i'll be more than happy to get with you on the details and let you know exactly what i do what i cost etc 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 got a few other projects out there along with joe dombrowski we have uh wrestling from the heartland Lost Developmental uh, Territory tapes, uh, volumes one and two, both approximately six hours of matches. This is when I um, I had a contract with WWE. So you, on this, there's a lot of guys that are top stars already, guys who are still working their way up. You'll see John Cena before he'd ever had a major match on Raw. Nigel, uh, you know, a lot of top guys are on there. Uh, those are uh, both uh, set. They're both uh, two-disc sets. And like I say it's over six hours on, on both of them. You, uh, they can be had at joe-dombrowski.com or prowrestlinglibrary.com. And Joe has a big selection of a lot of stuff there. But what we got coming out, I'm really excited about, is in April, there will be a four-disc set of the four Brian Pillman memorial shows that I promoted in Cincinnati, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. Uh, with all but a few of the matches from 99 will be on there, complete, wow. uh, with sound bites from guys like Jericho and uh, Mark Henry, guys who worked on the show. Uh, Brian Jr. and I sit down and, you know, talk about his memories as a young boy, you know, of those shows. 
And uh, that th- that's a four disc set, and that will be over twelve hours of, of content. So, and like I say, that's also going to be available, and there will be press releases for those out on Facebook and Twitter. And like I say, Joe-Dombrowski.com or ProWrestlingLibrary.com, and uh, all three sets. Uh, the Pillman will be available in the middle of next month, and the other two are available now. We've never had this conversation about, uh, I spent a lot of time with Pillman, and you did so much after he passed, you know, before and after with these things. Also honoring Brian Hildebrand, who was another great friend of ours for anyone. Yes. Brian would call at 2 a.m. and want to talk wrestling and, and wake people up, but I never said no because it was Brian, Dr. Mean Mark Curtis, such a wonderful guy out of the... the Beautiful, Zillion. yes. Great uh, person. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, well, we did two uh, benefits for his wife to help her pay the, the doctor bills for the cancer. We did... Uh, to uh, fantasy camps uh, in 2000 and 2001, the day before the Pillman show. So, yeah. Before there, yeah. Was, before there was crowdsourcing, I've said this many times, there was less Thatcher. Helping, <laughs> yeah. helping, helping, yeah. people, helping people. I have to send you photos of uh, January 4th, 1991. Uh, Benoit had gotten a large suite at Anoki's Keogh Plaza Hotel, and Jericho was working for war. Uh, an opposition promotion, Janichiro Tenru's group, and then I was there working for WCW for that uh, the later upcoming Dome show. Anyway, uh, Brian or Chris Benoit let us room. He let us have the two other uh, uh, bedrooms. So, but I, I got to send you photos of like particularly Pillman, uh, March twenty first, ninety one. That was his first trip to Japan, I believe, and in, in the six man opener for that pay per view cap by Flair Fujinami, and then a lot of the Flair Liger matches over there. Or excuse me, Pillman Liger matches over there, uh, way before they came into uh, uh, WCW later on. I think ninety two, ninety three was when that happened. But also another guy uh, you have your fingers on is John Moxie. Isn't that correct too? Ohio. Yeah. Board? Yeah. I, well, yeah. Uh, I was one of the guys I, I took the pot. I put the, uh, took the rough edges off. Uh, he started with me and the state at HWA once I sold the company. And then I went back in and on the back end and uh, polished him and got him in, in shape to go because uh, they had told him he needed to put on some size, so I got him on a good nutritional uh, diet and weight training, and uh, that's something I do as well. Uh, you know, I did competitive bodybuilding from age 47 to 54 in master's competition. Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah, uh, John is uh, one of my uh, subjects, I guess. Yeah, I've worked with John and, uh, and uh, B.J. Whitmer who was a big yeah. with uh, ring of honor for a long time. And, and who's a producer now with AEW. And uh, uh, the guy known as Eli Drake, I forget what his real name. Uh, Sean Ricker. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, Sean good. started at HWA as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. And uh, those guys were roommates there. I'm going to shut up and uh, because I know time's running short. I'll let Jonathan talk. I just want to, throw in you were one of the very first wrestlers who participated with a newsletter it was my newsletter the tolis brothers early 70s you were in the atlanta office which i think you would return to many many times but just names there when i 
and I'm, I'm leading up to something. Names are like Big Bill Dromo. I think uh, Robert Fuller and the Bullet Bob Armstrong were the tag champs at that point. Uh, a little bit later, well, the- Buddy Colt was there. Uh, uh, Sputnik was in for a while. This was during well, when I was in the office there. I, that was uh, during the war. With Gunkel. That's it's, right. I was going to uh, ask you about that war with Andy Gunkel. Yeah, seventy-two and seventy-three. Yeah, yeah. Who's- I uh, go ahead. Oh, who sent the Trojan horse Tom Ernesto there? Was that promoter Paul Jones, not to be confused with the wrestler Tom, Paul Jones? You know what? I, uh, I don't know what Tom's deal was. Tom was one of the reasons Ann uh, pulled away, I think, and he was her booker. But I want to tell you, this is the craziest story in the world. Leo Garibaldi was a dear friend, but more importantly, was a great mentor and to me, one of the best damn bookers ever, period, end of story. Uh, but the, for my first day in the Atlanta office... I'd wrestled, I'd met Leo in 66 when I wrestled in Atlanta. And uh, anyway, so we knew each other before I went down to uh, to do the TV with Gordon and work in the office and handle the PR and stuff. Uh, But that first day in the office, Leo said, let's go to lunch and uh, catch up. Okay. So, but he told me that day at lunch, he said, she said, regardless of this war, the guy that started it all will be booking in this office in the next few years. And that was Tom Renesto. And guess what? Leo was right. Well, cause you know, Leo was just incredible. All that history with his dad in Los Angeles, he came in to save the territory very briefly. Louis Tillet had almost killed it after our, our uh, golden twins, that being Joel Strongbow and Charlie, Mr. Moto quit on LaBelle. And then Louis Tillet came in, almost killed the territory, putting himself over, pissing off John Tolis, who quit and walked away for like the millionth time from the bell. And then after him, who comes in to save the territory is Leo Garibaldi, uh, who we all loved. But he couldn't even take all the uh, behind the scenes machinations of Chavo Guerrero and left. And who do we get after that? Uh, uh, Tom Renesto, who almost killed our territory. He might have been. Wow. One of the, you know, one of the stories I tell kids about, uh, you know, everybody that started with me knows how to call a match in the ring on the fly, or they wouldn't have finished with me because that's what I expect out of them. Uh, But uh, my first match in Atlanta was on a Friday night at the old auditorium and it was Roger Kirby and I, one one of the cousins. That's when we actually started the cousin thing. Kirby and Hall was in Florida at the time, but he had just left Atlanta. Anyway, uh, so we're in the old auditorium Friday night. Leo said, Les, I'm not planning on just beating you, but these this these heel team is going to be my top heel team for a long time here. I'm get, I'm just priming them and getting ready to build them. I got to get them over. I said, okay, not a problem, you know. So uh, now I don't know to this day if Kirby had ever worked with them at this time or not. And I'll tell you the team is here in a minute. So anyway, we get the finish, and Leo, as you know, not only booked but refereed, and he refereed. He was in our match, and it was one of those nights which you couldn't have made a mistake if you just set out to. Right, your feet were barely touched, and we had that old auditorium rocking. Wow. And Leo comes around in the middle of the match and says, "We're not wasting this. We're bringing it back. I'm changing the finish, and here's a new finish." Telling the two guys in the ring. And then conveyed it to the baby face and heel on the outside. And without missing a beat, we switched finishes and brought it back next week. And that team was Lars and Gene Anderson. Wow. 
Yeah, I ask these kids today, if somebody decides in the middle of your match you're going you're going 100 miles an hour, we're changing the finish, what are you going to do? Call timeout and go back to the dressing room and talk for another half hour or what? <laughs> Yeah, I don't uh, think today's that today's kids their heads would be spinning. They 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 wrote memorize it, and maybe we'll talk about that at another time because I wanted to talk about all of the great tag teams. You know, they talk about today you know, whoever is going to claim such and such team is the greatest kids of today. No, 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 no. We had two guys that couldn't even work. They were the shits in the ring, but they were magic as a tag team, the Valiant Brothers. And hey, I've said this to Jimmy. Right, this face. I love Jimmy and uh, John. God rest his soul. But uh, so many others. Uh, Blackjack's Lansing. You know, the, yeah, the you know what I call Jimmy? Jimmy is the first sports entertainer ever. <laughs> and there, he had it all in all other uh, areas. Go look at the Valiant Brothers '73, '74 for Vince Senior against like Bruno and Pedro. You know, amazing. I'll tell you a funny story about the first time I ever met Jimmy I'm in Nashville. Uh, we're at the National Old Fairgrounds Coliseum, and Nick Goulas comes in the dressing room. Len Rossi, Dennis Hall, Kenny Lucas, myself, and he comes in. Len, because Len was kind of a help Nick out. Nick would bounce things off of Len. Len was a, a mainstay there, kind of like Johnny Weaver was in, in Charlotte. Anyway, he's look at this. Len got this boy's picture. Look at this boy, big blonde, two two fifty, two sixty in shape. Look at that kid, boy. We can bring him in and we'll do this with him and do that with him. Put this belt on him and do this and do that. And Nick is just on a run, right? And we're all looking over his shoulder and look at this picture. The kid's clean shaven and handsome and the whole nine yards. And he's rattling on. And finally, Len said, wait a minute, Nick, what? He said, can he work? Nick looked at him. He said, hell boy, I don't know. <laughs> And that was Jimmy Valiant. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, it's, it's been a great 61 years, fellas, it has. Yeah. And listen, we'll do, we'll do this again sometime. Okay, because I Honestly. haven't even touched barely anything that I wanted to bring up. But I wanted to at least bring this up because I was thinking about it based on a conversation that Mike – Supermouth, Dave, were uh, talking from the Detroit. Berninsky? Yes. Yeah, Dave, Dave, you know Dave. Sure, I know Dave. So I got thinking about it, and it wasn't on the episode, but we were talking about Hall of Fames and things like that, and even a little bit here at the beginning of this episode. But right. I was just thinking about it, and maybe you guys can explain it to me, where if you go to baseball or football or other sports they base hall of fame talent on statistics what do you guys look at as far as a hall of fame talent for professional wrestling because i i would guess everybody's different jonathan for me i i it's important that they draw i know that's one of the important things for a lot of people that have never wrestled to me it's i i'm that's important but it's also important to me how they were mechanically were they good leaders in the ring you know uh and and that sort of thing uh was it was as important to me as did they draw a lot of people because there were some great workers you know realize some of the greatest workers of all time were the mid-card baby faces and heels that were that had to get the guys who were going to the top ready and get them over but they had to keep themselves in good enough shape to continue to do that with other people and stay in that territory for any length of time. 
So, exactly. but all that was important to me. Um, I, you know, uh, it, it's mechanics and, and uh, the whole ball of wax, I guess, is what I, you know, I, I know a lot of people, well, this guy, you know, now I know <clears throat> in a Melcher's Hall of Fame, there's been talk that the Andersons never went anywhere. And I said, where the hell do you have to, first of all, if you worked the territory days and could stay in one place for the rest of your life, you were crazy if you didn't. But what exactly. the point was, they did work other places, but between Gene and Ole, after Lars left, they didn't have to go any place but Atlanta and Charlotte, Charlotte and Atlanta, Atlanta and Charlotte, Charlotte and Atlanta. So why why move to 5,000 other territories when you don't have to? And did they draw? You're damn right they drew them. Or if you look at folks like, like you said, uh, not really going to other territories, uh, a Jerry Lawler in Memphis or Captain Lou sure. in New York, you know. Sure. If you can get that gig, why why pass it up? Well, you know, once once I got into the southeastern, well, I, I was down. I first my first venture in the southeast was in '63. I was in Charlotte for a while, but then when I came south to Atlanta in '66, from that point on, I thought. I could, okay, from Atlanta, Kirby and I went to uh, Louisiana for Lee Fields, then back into Mobile, then into Tampa, then back into Charlotte. Then I, I said, you know, these are all relatively short trips, and, a, and they're good territories. Why do I need to go anywhere else? I, I had the opportunity to go to Oklahoma. I had the opportunity to go to L- well, we're talking about L.A. When Leo was out there, I could have gone to L.A. and didn't. I uh, could have gone to, up to Portland. Uh but didn't because I didn't need to, right? I saved a lot of money. Plus, the good thing about the Southeast, there weren't two feet of snow in the winter. You you, find, <laughs> you got very few shows canceled in the winter. That was something to think about. Realize if you lived in Minneapolis and worked the AWA in the winter, in the trunk of your car when you set out for Man uh, for uh, Mankato or or for uh, one of the Canadian towns or something. You had foul weather gear in your trunk because you weren't sure you weren't going to get stuck on the road. I mean, Winnipeg. seriously. Yeah. So, yeah. So a lot of things I think come in, come into play and I, I wouldn't get into, there are some people I think in hall of fames that I'm not sure why they're there. There's a couple um, I can think of, but they're there anyway. It's a lot of, and let's face it in this day and age, believe me, it's a lot of politics. Let me, tell you, the, let me tell you the truth. And I, I'm going to say this, and you call it bragging, but it ain't bragging if you can back it up. I've excelled as a wrestler. I've excelled as a broadcaster. I've excelled at magazines, uh, publishing, editing, designing. Uh, the Briscoes and I put out the first ever Pro Wrestling T-shirt in 1972. In fact, you can still get that at Pro Wrestling Tees, a Briscoe Booster T-shirt. Check it out. Um, and training people, uh, some of my training drills are used at the performance center, WWE, the Japanese promotion with the girls and, and, and several of the top and many of the top trainers use my stuff. So do I think I've earned a spot in somebody's hall of fame? You bet yes. your ass, but I probably won't be there. Why? You're because I don't, I don't play politics and I don't kiss ass. Well, I just don't. But I also want to finally want to bring up a name you guys brought up earlier in the conversation who just passed away, buddy Colt. Can you, you guys got any good Buddy Colt stories? I don't have any good stories, except he was a hell of a heel. I, I'm surprised he never – he may have been considered for the NWA world oh, title. I don't know. No, he was. Mike Graham said that uh, Bobby Shane and Buddy Colt – Bobby Shane had amazing history in Atlanta, too. 
But the King, sure. Bobby, Buddy Colt were uh, Eddie was Eddie Graham that it was ready to put up the bond. This was before he took over from Munchnik as NWA president later. But before the Plain Act, those two. I mean, can you imagine? Not one. It was usually just one from a territory like uh, right. Boris Siegel in Houston, and then later Paul Bosch putting up Pepper Gomez. No, these were two guys at the same time that Eddie Graham was was high on. Yeah, yeah. I never. The only time I was ever in the ring with Buddy is Leo put me over in the first ever two ring battle royal in Atlanta in '73, and I don't even know if I locked up with Buddy in the ring. But actually, I've never worked with him. That's where we first met, and it was a mutual mutual respect thing, and we became friends. Uh, recent years, we you know saw each other at like Mobile, or, or uh, there was a big thing in Tampa back in '05, uh, and we at Charlotte. But uh, we we stayed in touch on uh, Facebook. We both love our fur babies and uh, the business. But Buddy was a good guy, class act, and uh, yeah, he's uh, that plane wreck. That's realize Bobby Shane was afraid of water, and as far as I know, that's the first single engine small aircraft he was ever in because he was afraid of those two. You know, he came into L.A. his one and only time, and they sadly didn't educate people as to who he was, his history, like why or St. Louis or, you know, obviously mega heel in the, in yeah. the South. Uh, in, in, uh, he was in Nashville. He and I, uh, he was in Nashville for a while and he and I worked partners in, in several of the towns. And, uh, he, he wanted me to go with him as one of the Shane brothers to Frisco. But when he called Roy, he was already tag teamed up as far, you know, and didn't have a spot for us, and it just never materialized. And then Bobby turned heel, and I didn't. And so anyway, but yeah, uh, I I first met Bobby uh, when I was working St. Louis TV at the Chase. His dad was a referee, and Bobby was just carrying jackets, for Christ's sake. You know, his uh, his, his surviving family came uh, when I threw that Sam Munchnik three-day uh convention for the boys that Thez was MC. All the boys trans themselves in. I didn't have to spend a penny. They put themselves up, not because of me, but because of Sam, how much respect they had for him. The Briscoes, Terry Frank, right. came in. But what I was going to say about Bobby Shane, he comes into LA. This was just weeks before the plane crash. And he's on his way to, I believe it was Baba, so it was all Japan. And he has a squash where he came out with his full outfit, the crown, the whole wonderful shtick very colorful and he puts over ed carpentier but they had a match it must have gone 14 minutes for tv that was out of this world that people still talk about and people were going who is this guy they had no clue we all knew who he was but out of this world it was a styles clash similar to what i was going to say when the i came in there uh, to visit family in calhoun georgia and i went to the atlanta city auditorium it was the christmas show 74 blassie and bill watts and fred was just there to visit family or something at Christmas. He had some family there, obviously family in St. Louis. But he didn't want to bump for Watts, and Cowboy was pissed off. Like the whole match, you could tell something was going on, and they weren't communicating. Do you remember that? Because I think you were there when that thing happened. No, I wasn't. I don't, don't remember it. Seventy-four. You might have. You might have gone back to maybe the fields or. Uh, someone else, but it was one of the crazy, it was second only to the other weirdest Styles Clash match I ever saw. <laughs> Again, involving Blassie against Billy Robinson in the main event at the HIC in Honolulu, where Fred refused to do anything Billy wanted to do. Fred was a character. I worked with Fred 
when he was in for Barnett uh, in the in the early '60s uh, on TV a couple times. That yeah, he was a character. He he died. Say, hey, guess what? What, Fred? I signed a contract with MGM. Really? Yeah. Now if I can just get them to sign it, that was Ed's. That was. <laughs> that was his his jokes, right? Freddie's Freddie. Those kind of jokes Freddie told. But yeah, good guy, it, good guy. It, yeah. The Twizzler. Uh, it was his take on the the twist in '64 in the Dick Dyke show. You've got to see that because it's a classic in wrestling. Fred Blassie, and then he picks up an airplane spins Dick Van Dyke. You seen that episode? <laughs> no, like, I never have. Oh, never yeah. have. YouTube. wrestlers and TV shows. Did you did you know Johnny Heideman broke uh, Jackie Gleason's arm? No, or no, some no. broke something. Well, you know Gleason had wrestling skits on his Saturday Night Show about once a year, and he got the the wrestlers from the New York office. And Heideman told me the story. Johnny and three, you know, three wrestlers, and then uh, Gleason was, uh, you know, whatever his character was, was the fourth wrestler in tag match. And I forget what it was. He kept saying, "I want you to do this," and, and Johnny said, "I don't think you can take. The, I want to do it." And Johnny said, "I am going to tell the star of the show, right, <laughs> who's paying us, that I won't do what he wants done." So whatever it was, and I think it either cracked his collarbone or his arm. And Johnny just had a Johnny. I thought was uh, he said I almost had a heart attack. My God, I'll never get booked again, right? I just broke Jackie Gleason's heart for Christ's sake. But yeah, that's uh, well. Back then, I I remember seeing as a kid pictures in the old magazines of uh, Kurt Douglas with Fez in in L.A. A lot of the wrestlers used to go to the matches, right, and walk some of the uh, wrestlers to the uh, the movie actors used to go to the matches. I mean, and walk some of the wrestlers to the ring occasionally. Those uh, Jack Benny and Bob Hope and Crosby with Gorgeous George. Yeah. Stuff like yeah. that. Oh, man. There's so much uh, history. Uh, wow. Uh, let's give your email address one more time. I don't know, uh, Jonathan. Les Thatcher 28 yeah. at gmail.com. And, and like I said, I mentioned the T-shirt. That's true. Uh, I... Uh, is my idea. Jack and Jerry and I were sitting around uh, having an adult beverage and maybe something else. I'm not real sure. And just <laughs> talking in general. And I had said to them, because I had mentioned to a couple of promoters, I said, you know, because T-shirts had become a big thing with rock bands and this and that. And nobody was in. The promoters were, weren't interested. In, if you realize back in, in the 70s, they, I mean, all sold nothing, right? Except the boys sold black and white uh, glossy eight by tens at a buck a piece. Other than that, you know, and maybe a, a little printed program for the show. So anyway, we were talking and I brought it up wow. and Jack said, well, why don't we do it? I said, what? He said, why don't the three of us do it? So we did. And it, it started a landfall, but we weren't good businessmen. And, and that's a long story anyway, but, uh, you know, we, we shut it down after, uh, we had to pay the buildings, obviously, as a lot of some of the buildings took a pretty hefty cut of any merchandise that you sold. And then the promoters realized, hey, maybe these guys got a good idea. Then they wanted a piece, right? So we decided to hell with this. <laughs> it almost sounds because like back a... back then it was just white T-shirts with black. You know, the the pictures were black. Jerry Lawler did the art artwork, by the way. Did he? Uh, 
I wish I still had the original. Yeah, I paid him the absorbent uh, fee of $25 to do a, a pen and ink drawing of Jack and Jerry. Because those were in the programs. I had different people when I was doing newsletters. Yeah, well, I, I was doing columns for Keetzer for him to run the ad. And we were running the ad in the Atlanta program and in the Charlotte program because I was doing both programs at the time. And then the, and Jerry, I remember the first time Jerry and I took those T-shirts and we did a Thunderbolt Patterson, TP Power. And we took a bunch of those shirts to Fedville the first time we got them back from the printers in Charlotte. And we were blown away by the way the kid, people jumped on those damn T-shirts. And, of course, at the, Jack was traveling all over at the time. Jerry and I, you know, and we were it was just, and it was hard to deal, handle them. And we, that's why we got into the mail order a little bit. And then we took, uh, I had to take them all. I had to rent a, an apartment when I moved, went down to Atlanta to work with Gordon and in the office, I had to rent a two bedroom apartment because one bedroom was just for friggin' t-shirts for Christ's sake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Cause that's what, that was our warehouse was wherever I was living at the time. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, but yeah, we started in 1972. We put the first T-shirt, first wrestling T-shirt ever on the market out. So it was uh, Briscoe Boosters, and then just a, a tad bit later, TP Power. Yeah, and then we tried something. We tried something with uh, Tim Woods wrestling and with Watts, and it just, uh, you know, they, they, it just, you know, we 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 weren't good. Well, here's the crazy thing. You know what we were selling those? T- we were talking about prices earlier here. We were selling those T-shirts three fifty a piece. Oh no no no, that's too cheap. Oh yes yes yes, we were and making a profit. But then, like I said, you know, uh, I remember Norfolk. The scope wanted forty percent. That you're out of your mind, right? And then, and like I say, and then the, when the promoters saw what we were doing, well, now they want a piece. So, and we we actually in, in the southeast. Uh, I don't. I haven't been to Atlanta in a while. But rich department stores were in, I know they were in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and Atlanta, and several other cities around the Southeast. And um, the, Heb- one, uh, the Hebners, I don't know, it was uh, Earl or Dave, uh, knew somebody in, in, in the rich uh, hierarchy. And we actually talked to them about putting the Briscoe t shirts into the rich stores. Now, if that had happened, we would have continued on, you know, but it just, it never, never materialized. So it, it didn't happen. But, uh, oh, I know what I wanted to say. Uh, I, I don't want to miss a beat on that. Was uh, I thought Leo Garibaldi said instead of bringing you in, he did. He sent in, or he had sent in, the Rebel Bill Ash to take over the Les Thatcher in California role. <laughs> I, I don't know if you know. heard that one. He, no, I haven't heard. Leo, Leo off. Uh, he was he was help. He was booking down in Mobile for Lee Fields, Dothan, and in, in, in there for a while, and and uh, that was in. I think it's '74. This was uh, this was after I'd gone back to Charlotte because he called me and he said I'm going. He was remember when he bought into Texas or, or right. got involved there in some some shape way shape or form. Anyway, he called me and he said I've recommended you to take the book here, and um, so I took it. Uh, I didn't say what I was doing, but I took a couple of days off and went down and worked a shot um, and talked to Lee. But I just we couldn't work it out to where I thought it was, it was a good move for me. So it just never transpired. Yeah. But Leo, uh, Christ, if that, you know, I, I think if that man came back from the grave, give him a few weeks to watch 
see what's going on and start making some changes. And he could book today. I truly believe that. He was such a creative, uh, great. He really was. One of the sweetest guys in the world. I haven't told you this before, and Jonathan might get a kick out of it. Jonathan, I'm sorry. I'm motor mouthing here. Uh, but at one of Red Bastine's Texas shootouts, Carol let him put on, you know, she would have it at her, her hotel there. I think it was in Fort Worth, not that far right. out of Dallas. But anyway, uh, and, and I'm sure you knew that Leo Garibaldi could sing opera. He was actually, you know, passable. So he and right. Johnny Valentine, Johnny was, you know, in the wheelchair. This must have been about 91. And uh, they're singing, Johnny's singing with Leo Garibaldi. And Reggie Parks looks at me, and I guess he didn't like opera. He goes, Mike, let's get the hell out of here and go to a titty bar. <laughs> but he just could not handle because Leo, Leo was hitting those high notes. And, when I, you know, uh, when I had my – I had a three-hour block on Clear Channel, all sports in Cincinnati for two years uh, called Wednesday Night Main Event from 9 to midnight, call in and guest and so forth. And WWE was in town on Wednesday night for a house show at the old Cincinnati gardens. And I sent one of my kids out and they brought, uh, Foley, uh, Regal road dog and D'Lo Brown down to this, to the studio live. And I, 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 somewhere I've got this on tape because I, I've got a bunch of the tapes from those, those radio shows. But anyway, on that, our show, uh, D'Lo and Foley sang, it's a man's man. I'm a man's man to, uh, Regal. Remember that was his, Interest right. song when, when he first started with them, yes. So, Ooh. oh, you got to find that, but I, I, I know. I, I, you know, I wish I had every. You realize, all these years, I wish I had all the pictures and programs and magazines. God, I do, but I don't. And you know, it is what it is. Well, guys, I, I think we need to take a break, right? Yeah. And definitely we'll have to set up a part two, because like I said, barely even scratched the surface on stuff I wanted. to. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to do it again. You know, uh, there's been talk, a friend of mine's talked about me setting up. I've got, uh, the reason I can't do pictures right now is when kids, kids tend to send me links to matches and want me to watch them, right? And I couldn't watch it on just a little computer screen. So I've got a 32-inch flat screen for my computer, for my PC here at the house. And, uh, so I don't have a, you know, there's no, you know, there's no camera on this TV set. So I'd have to buy, you know, a camera and, and get set up for all that stuff. And, and, and I'd have to learn. My grandson says, Papa, you can learn. I said, Papa's tired of learning. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I've been learning for 80 years. Give it a break, man. I don't, <laughs> oh, shit. I don't need Jonathan, I still have a flip phone. So it's a four, that, it's four G, but it's a flip phone, and I love it. Thank it's you okay. very much. I'm I don't, I don't tweet. You know what I tell kids when they see me pull it out? I said, you know, I do an amazing thing with this. What? I said I talk on it. <laughs> I know you wouldn't understand that, but I do. I actually talk on this. Uh, Elizabeth, I'm coming. <laughs> Oh, Guys, it's been it's been fun, and, and I'll be more than happy to do it again sometime. Seriously. All good. Hey, Liz, thank you. We will make it work. Well, thank you, guys, and you guys be safe. Mask up.
Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Wow! Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. Now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while in Cell Block 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. <laughs> Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. How's it going, guys? This is Amy Dumas. You guys might know me as Rita, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. 